Welcome to episode three of She Knows Now Radio, the monthly podcast dedicated to having a big conversation with exceptional women across professional industries. The mission of She Knows Now is to produce confidence-affirming content and events for millennial women to empower her on her journey towards self-actualization. I am your host, Tiffany Hardin. I'm a marketer, entrepreneur, and the founder of She Knows Now, and you're listening to She Knows Now Radio. Remember, you can always reach out to us online at SheKnowsNow.com and on Twitter and Instagram by typing in at SheKnowsNow. We also want to make sure that you're plugged in, so please subscribe to our monthly newsletter so you can get updates on what new events are happening every month and our giveaways and any other information we need to share with you. Today's guest is Cindy Gallup. She is an advertising consultant, founder, and former chair of the U.S. branch of the advertising firm Bartle, Bogle, and Haggerty. She's the founder of If We Ran the World and Make Love Not Porn Companies. According to the TED blog, Gallup's TED Talk Make Love Not Porn was one of the most talked about presentations at the 2009 TED conference. Yes, Cindy Gallup is doing big things in sex tech and has a wealth of information to share relating to finding out what works for you, self-promotion, and the art of micro-actions. Make sure you listen and take notes. There are a lot of gems in here and a lot of quotables. So let's get started. Cindy, it's great to have you here on Chino's Now Radio. We are all about propagating content that affirms inner confidence through coordinating events and speaking with exceptional women like yourself. So thank you again for coming on. Um, and uh, we can just actually hop right on in and um, we'll give our audience an opportunity to get to know you better. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how you got into the world of advertising and how it's taken you from the UK, where you're from, and to New York in the US? Um, sure. So um, I'll start by saying, Tiffany, that everything in my life and career has been a total accident. Um, so I've never consciously planned or intended anything. And, and you know, your listeners will hear in the course of this interview, um, you know, what I mean by that. Um, uh, first of all, just to give you my background, I'm half English, half Chinese. Uh, my father's English, my mother is Chinese. I was born in the UK, but when I was six, we moved to Brunei in Borneo, and so I grew up in Asia. But I went back to the UK to go to school and to university. So um, I um, read English literature at um, the University of Oxford. And I fell madly in love um, at Oxford with theatre. So um, I was president of my college drama society, Somerville. Um, I acted, directed, you know, wrote stage managed. And Oxford has a very thriving student drama scene. And I decided that all I wanted to do for the rest of my life was work in theatre. Um, but I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or director. And when I was young, I used to draw a lot. And so my friends at Oxford would ask me to design theatre posters for their shows. And from there, I kind of got pulled into helping them promote their shows, and I realised that I really enjoyed doing that. So I actually started my career as a marketing and publicity officer in theatre, and I worked in several theatres in the UK for several mm -hmm. years until I got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, <laughs> which is what happens in the theatre. 
And um, at the time that I was feeling particularly fed up, I was the marketing officer at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool in England. And part of my job um, promoting the theatre was to give talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women. And after the talk, one of the women came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. It's time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. Um, and so I did. Um, so I joined the advertising industry in 1985 in London, um, at the very bottom of the ladder, um, because I, you know, um, at first what I tried to do was to get a job in advertising, and that didn't work uh, because it was that classic circular trap of nobody would give me a job in an advertising agency because I didn't have any experience. But I couldn't get any experience if nobody gave me a job at an advertising agency. <laughs> right. So, so after you know applying to several agencies and being rejected, I, I realised I had to go right back to the beginning, and so I basically rejoined the graduate um, recruitment round um, several years later. Uh, you know, sort of um, later than, than one normally would, and, and, and I applied for um, entry level graduate trainee programs. Um, at, at advertising agencies and fortunately you know one of them offered me a job and I took it immediately it was an agency called Ted Bates and um, I spent a couple of very happy years there um, then I moved from Ted Bates to J. Walter Thompson um, from there to an agency called Gold Greenies Trot and then in 1989 I fetched up at Bartle Vogel Hegarty which is where I ended up spending the majority of my advertising career. Wow 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 I have uh, a couple questions for you because I really, um, I do relate to, to your experience in, in theater. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm curious to know why or how you knew uh, that, that you weren't good enough to be the, an actress or, or a director um, and what kind of sort of epiphany, what happened to kind of give you that epiphany and, and kind of lead you into a new direction? Um, oh, oh it, it was very simple. Um, it was the fact that, uh, because Oxford has a very vibrant um, student theatre scene, I was surrounded by really brilliant actors and actresses. I mean, mm. I mean, to, to give you an idea, I was at Oxford with Hugh Grant, who oh. came to my twenty, who actually came to my twenty-first birthday party. <laughs> so, um, so you know, Oxford has actually uh, the Oxford student drama scene has been the birthplace of many very famous actors and actresses, and that's the kind of talent around you. And so, of course, I knew I wasn't up, up, up to that at all. But what I did know was that I, you know, passionately wanted to work in theatre. And when I began, you know, designing theatre posters at Oxford, um, effectively, although I didn't even know it was called that then, kind of doing publicity and marketing, um, what I did know was that all around me, um, you know, were my friends who were very good at acting and directing, who, who were all determined to go and be actors and directors. So I knew that there was a huge amount of competition in those roles. And when I realised there was this thing that where you could market theatre, I thought, Gosh, I bet it's a lot easier to get jobs doing that, and it totally was. It totally was because um, because you know, a um, it certainly wasn't a role that people leaving university thought about in theatres, and b um, you know, um, theatre is um, obviously. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a profession that you have to be passionate about. It pays absolutely nothing. And so, again, lots of people, you know, graduating from university were not interested in going to work in theatre in, in, in the more conventional sort of business 
um, you know, orientated roles. Yeah. Um, and so I never had any problem at all finding a job in theater doing marketing and publicity. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, <laughs> similarly, I, I thought I was going to, growing up, I, I always sing, I always write, wrote. Um, I thought I was going to be some mix between, you know, mogul Clive Davis and then like singer songwriter babyface, something along those lines. And uh, I went to LA one time uh, to do one of those talent shows uh, that you actually have to pay to get into. I was young. And I realized, you know, there were people that were really, really you know, uh, on their game and professional about it. And I realized that I just like doing this for fun and I don't want to compete. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was similar, yeah. it was a similar experience. That's what, that's what made me ask you about that because at that, but what's funny is that at that moment, you know, I still knew I wanted to be involved. I just knew that I wasn't going to do it like that. And yeah. it, it kind of, you know, directed my, my path towards the music business and talent management and then getting into advertising so tell me something, when you were at BBH, what roles were you doing there and, and what is something that you were most proud of from, from that experience? Sure. So um, so my background in advertising is account management. Um, and so I joined BBH as an account director um, and was then promoted to the board and became a board account director. And I then... Um, uh, that was at BBH in London, where I ran, you know, large global accounts like Coca-Cola and Ray-Ban and Polaroid. Then in 1996, I went out to Singapore to help start up and run BBH Asia Pacific as the deputy CEO there. Mm. And then in 1998, I moved here to New York to start up um, BBH New York as, as the president. Um, and, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, what I would say um, I'm most proud of at BBH is, well, to, um, a, a couple of things, um, one of which is kind of me, although it's not totally me, and the other one of which is to do with the agency as a whole. So um, uh, the reason I'm here in New York now, actually, is, um, is because... You know, relatively early on in my BBH career, as a young, thrustingly ambitious account director, <laughs> I, I pinned Nigel Bogle, who, who is one of the Bs in, you know, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, I pinned him up against the wall and went, where am I going in this agency? As you do. And Nigel did the classic management trick of turning the question back on me. So he said, well, Cindy, you tell us where you want to go and what you want to do. And he said, don't be bounded by the realms of the possible. If there is a job that you want to do in this agency and doesn't exist yet, tell us what it is. Mm. So I thought, gosh, well, you know, can't say fairer than that. So I went away and I thought about it and I came back to him and I said to him, my dream job ultimately is running BBH North America. And to be my total dream job, um, I'll be doing it in New York. And the reason I said that was because at the time in London, we had the Levi's business and Levi's was headquartered in San Francisco. And so I thought if we ever open an office in the US, it's likely to be in San Francisco, but I'd much rather be living and working in New York. So I just kind of, you know, put that in there. <laughs> so, um, so at the time, we only had the one office in London. But Nigel said to me, OK, Cindy, your request is locked. Um, and, and he said, actually, we have begun discussing the idea of one day opening up in America. And, you know, as and when we do, you know, you're on the list. So um, the, the first office BBH opened outside London was, in fact, um, 
the Asia-Pacific office in Singapore simply because there are a number of clients in that region who are actively asking for an office on the ground. And so the client demand was there first. But, you know, when a couple of years later, you know, the decision was taken to, you know, open office in New York, um, I got to go and start it. So that was fantastic. Um, now, now, the other thing that I would say I'm particularly proud of, actually for BBH as a whole, for all of us, because, you know, to, um, the BBH culture is very much about teamwork. But um, when I um, started up BBH New York back in 1998, obviously, you know, we were pitching massively for business because we needed to win business to establish ourselves. And so I, you know, did 15 million, you know, pitches, credentials, meetings, you know, discussions with clients. And and what you do in that scenario, and, and by the way, bear in mind that this is all of, you know, 19 years ago. So, you know, back then, what you did in every one of those pitch meetings was you showed the client or the prospective client your showreel. So, you know, um, back in the day before digital really took hold, because, um, you know, the 90s is really when, when the internet and, and digital technology began coming to its own, um, the showreel was composed of TV commercials. And so, you know, we had a showreel at BBH um, New York that was, you know, a dozen TV commercials. So um, I was eternally grateful that because I worked for an agency that had the highest possible creative standards, I watched that showreel 15 million times and I never got tired of watching it. <laughs> and I used to think, you know, if I was, you know, the CEO or the new business director at a another agency that I could name, because I could name quite a few of them, that would so not be the case. Um, you know, BBH's work and creativity was and is just absolutely mind-blowing. And so I was enormously proud of that. But I was particularly proud of the fact that it meant that I never got bored watching our showreel and I loved watching it every single time because I could just watch those commercials over and over. I love that. I love that. That's so awesome. And I love what you said about uh, what, uh, what, what Nigel said about don't be bound to the realms of the possible. Um, what, what an amazing quote. And uh, Trust me, we'll we'll be seeing it a little bit later. I'm sure when I start doing some of the uh, social posts. Uh, so I another question that's going to kind of flip it a little bit. Now, what is uh, a failure in your career uh, that you were super grateful for that kind of preempted that you knew it was time for um, some reinvention or a new perspective? Sure. So. Um so as I mentioned, in 1996, I went out to Singapore um, as the deputy CEO um, to help start up a BBH Asia Pacific. And so we hired a small team and began building the agency in the Asia region. And, you know, about, about a year in, um, Simon Sherwood, who was the CEO and my boss, um, gave me my performance review. And at BBH, um, uh, I, I don't know if they still do this, um, but... And what we had was a system of 360 performance reviews, by which I mean everybody in the agency was reviewed by the people beneath them, either side of them, around them, as much as by the people above them, which was a really great way of getting a 360 perspective of how people were doing. Because sometimes, you know, what people reporting into somebody observe is very different from yeah. what their bosses see from above. So, um um, so my performance review involved Simon interviewing 
um, pretty much everybody in the agency, given it's a very small agency, and and then you know um, synthesizing you know um, their evaluation of me into my performance review, and my performance review was not good. Um, you know what um, what um, came through was that you know my management style was not working. You know I was I was being you know too autocratic, too too tough, um, not very user friendly, um, and you know things were really not going well in terms of my ability to lead in the way that BBH would want me to. So obviously in the first instance, um, that was devastating to hear. Mm. So I went home and burst into floods of tears, as you do. And, you know, then I, you know, um, got over that and looked at this review very clear-sightedly and thought, you know, this is something that I have to fix. Um, not just for work and, you know, professional reasons, but this is something I have to fix for myself because this is not a good way to go through life. So I went back to Simon and I said to him, um, you know, I totally take on board everything you've said. Give me three months. I said, I'm going to completely turn my performance around in three months. And at the end of three months, I want you to, you know, re-interview every person you spoke to. And I promise you that you will get a very different perspective. Um, and I, I quoted um, to him and Nigel Bogle, who, who was my, you know, um, above Simon, also my boss back in London. Um, I, um, I cited a quote from, from the Chinese philosopher Lao Tse, who said, he who conquers others is strong. He who, he who conquers himself is all powerful. And so I basically um, uh, committed to, I am going to drastically transform the way I operate as a leader and a manager in the next three months. Mm. And I did. You know, at the end of three wow. months, Simon, Simon reviewed me with everyone in the agency, and they reported a transformation into the kind of leader and the kind of manager they really wanted to work for and really enjoyed working with. And, and that was just a very, very good thing for me to have gone through. Oh, my God. That's an amazing story. That is an amazing story. And I feel so connected to you because of that story, not, not from a management perspective, but there is a moment when you have those reviews and that was really, uh, that was, that's a really powerful time because you, you get to have that moment of self-reflection and you get to have that moment of, well, what does this mean to me? You know, and what am I sort of putting out into the world that, you know, your friends probably wouldn't even give that sort of feedback to you ever so you know this is a really cool way to to think about it and similarly you know I I kind of uh started my company based on that and I you know I was very getting very lazy at my agency job and um my my boss who's also one of my mentors you know he's going through my review and it was fine but then he looked at me and he was like listen you don't want to be here why aren't you doing what you want to do? <laughs> and That's excellent. That's I, excellent. I was just like, kind of like, I just looked at him and I thought I was fake. I thought I was doing a really damn good job of faking it. And I thought I was like, I'm just coming up in here and doing what I got to do. Nobody knows that I don't care, whatever. But he knew. And he asked me what, basically, what am I going to do about it? And, you know, that was really the impetus of like, yeah, I got to go. You know yeah, what? yeah, that's that's fantastic. You need someone to say that to you. Yeah, I was like, if it if somebody else notices, <laughs> that means you've got to go. Yeah. yeah, that is hilarious. So, you know, you're a startup founder now, and uh, you know your company, Make Love Not Porn, is such a interesting and I would even say needed um, conversation that we should be having socially. Um, but 
my question um, about that is, you know, the perception of the role startup founder is typically reserved for scrappy 20 something adults that grow very quickly into CEOs and then sell their companies. Um, but that is not your path. You know, you're 50 something, I think, and uh, you are now a startup founder. So I want to know more about your startup. I want everybody else to know more about your startup because I kind of know about it. Um, and then what it was like to enter this sort of new space of tech that um, as a an older woman um, who has a very diverse background amongst the rest of these guys. Sure. So, so first of all, let, let me just correct a couple of um, sure. widely held uh, misconceptions, Tiffany. Um, the first is, and I don't have the exact um, statistics at my fingertips, but but they're very easy to find when you Google. Um, the um, the highest rate of businesses being started up and the, and the largest number of entrepreneurs in this country is not amongst young 20-somethings. It's, the, it, it's amongst the um, 45 to 60-year-olds. So, um, so older people are starting many more companies than younger people are. Um, equally, um, vast amounts of women are starting companies at every age. It's just that um, in line with a whole lot of other dynamics that operate around women, um, <laughs> the, the businesses women start are all too often looked down on and despised because they're seen as women's stuff or lifestyle businesses. And nothing could be further from the truth. As I'm very fond of saying, there is a huge amount of money to be made out of taking women seriously. Um, but I just want to lodge those two points because, you know, the... The, the, the high-profile media-covered version of entrepreneurship is not what is really going on in this country. Exactly. So, I, yeah. I, I, so, I don't get that. <laughs> I don't. That's why I so, said that that, uh, that perception is, is very, like, that perception is definitely something that needs to get debunked, like, immediately. Well, one of the ways in which debunk it is I regularly have to say to women, why do you say the word self-promotion like it's, like it's a bad thing? If you don't promote yourself, who the hell else will? Um, and like my friend Maggie Fox says, women who don't self-promote are letting us all down because you cannot be what you cannot see. Mm. And so men are extremely good at bullshitting. <laughs> and so I tell women to bullshit just like the men do. And I feel very confident saying that because no matter how much a woman may think she's bullshitting, you will never be able to bullshit at the level that men do. <laughs> all, all you are doing when you think you're bullshitting is finally doing yourself justice. So, so... So that's what we need, need to dispel that, that misperception. Um, in my case, my startup um, is a complete and total accident, like everything else in my life. <laughs> so um, I date younger men. Um, they tend to men in their 20s. And about nine or 10 years ago, and bear in mind, um, this is before the media ever picked up on what I'm about to talk about, I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. The convergence of both of those factors results in porn becoming by default the sex education today in not a good way. So um, I decided to do something about this, being a naturally action-oriented person. And about nine years ago, um, purely as, as a little side venture, I put up on no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com 
that posts the myths of hardcore porn and balances them with reality. So the construct is porn world versus real world. I launched Make Love Not Porn at the TED conference. I'm the only TED speaker to have uttered the words come on my face on the TED stage six <laughs> times. Um, the talk went viral instantly as a result, and it drove an extraordinary global response to my tiny clunky website that I had never anticipated. Emails poured in from people all around the world, young and old, men and females, straight and gay, that showed that I had uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I felt a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. So I saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to a huge untapped global social need. And I stress the word big because even at concept stage back in 2009, I knew that if I wanted to combat the impact of porn as default sex ed globally, I had to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So what I decided to do was, I always emphasize to people that make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst a whole host of other benefits, people could then bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is simply artificial entertainment. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain. And by that I mean parents to kids, teachers to schools, everyone to everyone. And equally importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. So what I decided to do was to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to the one area no other social network or platform will go in order to socialize sex and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So four years ago, my team and I launched the first stage of this vision, makelovenotporn.tv which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. Mm. Anybody from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real-world sex, and we're very clear what we mean by this. We're not porn. We're not amateur. We're building a whole new category on the internet that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed sexual self-expression and self-identification, which they don't. So social sex videos of Make Love Not Porn are not about performing for the camera. They're simply about doing what you do on every other social platform, capturing what goes on in the real world as it happens spontaneously in all its funny, messy, glorious, silly, wonderful, beautiful, ridiculous humanness, we curate to make sure of that. Watch every video from beginning to end. Don't publish unless it's real. And we have a revenue sharing business model. So part of the sharing economy, like Uber and Airbnb, you pay to rent and stream social sex videos. And then half that income goes to our contributors, or as we like to call them, our Make Love Not Porn Stars. <laughs> because we would like our Make Love Not Porn Stars one day to be as famous and celebrated as YouTube stars for the same reasons authenticity, realness, individuality, and we would like them to make just as much money.
We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your Make Love Not Porn video could hit a million rentals at $5 per rental and we give you half that income. We are the answer to the global economy. That is major. <laughs> and you know, for those for those that are intrigued by this this idea, even just sort of from an intellectual perspective, um, like I am, you know, how can you, how do you sort of marry the the sex tech part of it, uh, that I think that's a, a, a phrase you coined, um, with the sort of moral part of it? Because I'm sure that's something that people ha- have potentially taken issue with, with you with, I, I, I have to believe, um, some of those emails that you probably received were, why are you doing this or some, no, you know. Um, no, um, none, none whatsoever. That is I, I have never received a single email like that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we have had nothing but a universally positive response um, ever since we launched. Because when you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. That's the best part. And I think you do a great job of articulating that for for people who are sort of on the fence about just understanding that I think you you do a great job of that and the business opportunities clearly there and you already have a you know there's 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 already a a proven (laughs) market for for that so now now, Tiffany I particularly want to say to your your listenership Mm -hmm. guys please consider becoming make love not porn stars (laughs) 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 um so so um we spent literally years concepting Make Love Not Porn.tv because we knew that if we were going to invite people to do something that they'd never done before, socially share their real world sex, we had to create a completely safe and trustworthy space um, and to think through every possible ramification of that. Yeah. So we operate unlike anybody else in the adult sphere and quite frankly, unlike most people on the internet, period. So, first of all, it is not possible to complete our submissions process unless your video is fully consensual, legal, everyone's over 18. You know, we require two forms of visual ID for every participant, including, by the way, if you have chosen to have someone else behind the camera. Even if you never see them, we have to know exactly who they are, two forms of visual ID. It is is not possible to even submit, let alone have published, anything that isn't fully consensual and legal. Then um, when you submit your video, we do something nobody else does, human curation. We watch it from beginning to end. Um, We do that just to make sure it's real, but that allows us to see everything that's going on. Then when you submit your video, um, our curators will engage with you personally. They'll Skype with you, you know, um, answer questions, reassure, handhold. But we begin building a relationship with you from day one. If you're at all worried about um, your school, your employer, it's absolutely fine to be anonymous. You know, you can wear masks, faces in shadow, out of frame. Probably about half of our Make Love Not Porn stars choose to do that. The other half are happy showing their faces. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have a how-to section on our blog. And, you know, one of our posts says, how to shoot an amazing real-world sex video without ever showing your face. Um, your video is only viewable on our platform, by our members, by the people who have actually paid to rent it. And... We operate a rent and stream model versus a download and own because our commitment to you as a Make Love Not Porn star is the moment anything changes, your relationship, your life, your circumstances, your mind, all you have to do is tell us, we take your videos down, they're gone forever, they're nowhere else on the internet. No one else does that, by the way. And then we're also building our community of Make Love Not Porn stars offline as well as online. 
And so our ability to do this is constrained by the fact that we're tiny and bootstrapping, but we regularly hold drinks gatherings where we invite our Make Love Not Porn stars to come and meet us and each other. And so we're building a very special community yeah. of amazing people um, for all of whom, I mean, a few of our Make Love Not Porn stars have filmed themselves for each other before. The vast majority had never even filmed themselves doing anything sexual before. They're doing it for us because they believe in our mission. And, you know, the wonderful thing is... Um, so the way to think about what we're doing is think about all those celebrations of relationships that crop up in your Facebook timeline every day from your friends. Right. Engagement announcements, wedding photos, lovey-dovey couple things. All we're doing is we're providing a platform to celebrate that last air of human relationships no one else will let you. But the motivations and the social dynamics are exactly the same. So on Facebook, the kind of thing you see from your friends is we're madly in love. And so here we are. On romantic weekend in Paris, you know, kissing in front of the Eiffel Tower, walking hand in hand by the Seine, eating in a bistro. On Make Love Not Porn, it's we're madly in love. And here's the amazing sex we had in our hotel room in Paris that weekend. Same deal. And so one of the things we love is that our Make Love Not Porn stars tell us that socially sharing their real world sex has been as transformative for them and their relationships as socially sharing everything else has been for the world. So we're, we're all inclusive, LGBT. We have lots of solo videos, uh, men and women, you know, um, masturbating. Um, quite often the first time they've ever filmed themselves doing that and shared it. And, you know, our solo Make Love Not Porn stars tell us that doing that made them love themselves more. That's very it enhanced their sexual sense of self, their sexual self-esteem. Couples tell us that doing this transformed their relationship. Because when you decide to film yourselves having sex, you have to talk about it. When you talk about it, it doesn't actually matter how long you've been together, the conversation goes places it's never, ever gone before. And couples write to us and say, we thought we're open, this took us to a whole new level. That's we love that. really, that's really, really interesting. And, you know, uh, being in a, a, a time and space these days where um, <laughs> even, even celebrities that do this and then like, oh no, it leaked, you, there's no there's no room for that. Now it's like all you wanted to do was get paid for what you were going to do anyway. So here's a great way to do that and get paid and, and, and no one's, well, you know, the way. Um, well, also, I, I would just emphasize, Tiffany, that a number of our Make Love Report stars didn't even realize they'd get paid. That they mm. just love what we're doing so much, they shared their videos without, without even realizing you could make money. Money is not the primary motivation for any of our Make Love Report stars. Right. Um, now, now, having said that, by the way, I was just talking the other day with um, my curators, and we fight a huge battle to build this business. I was just going to ask. You know, um, every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. And so we're tiny and bootstrapping, and that inhibits our business growth in many, many ways. But... But, you know, we worked out that um, two of our most prolific Make Love Not Porn stars um, who've posted a whole bunch of videos have, over the past four years that we've been operating, made over $20,000. Wow. You know, that's that's a nice little, you know, bonus. Um, a, another couple who've been with us for 18 months have already made over $10,000. You know, a number of Make Love Not Porn stars regularly make four figures at each payout. And so, you know, t um, we love the fact that, that people tell us you know, they're paying off student loans, they could buy a new washing machine, they could take a vacation that they couldn't otherwise have done because this is nice bonus income. We love that. That is amazing. That is amazing. Um, and very, uh, you know, it, it really makes you think about, the, like you said, the, the benefits of 
being incredibly transparent the way we are in other ways and why, you know, this is something that some people and most people consider very private, but, you know, that when that privacy sort of turns into um, an opportunity to, you know, educate and to express yourself, that's a very interesting way to, to think about that. Because like you said, there's too many, there's too many instances where people feel like they're being suppressed. And, you know, Americans are, especially American women, <laughs> we're, we're probably the number one suppressed. Um, but that leads me to a question of, you know, when it comes to building your business, and this one in particular, um, you know, I would love to know if you, using your own words, um, had a moment in your career, especially with this, where you felt uh, a fear of what other people think related to to the trajectory of of this. None whatsoever. Our biggest obstacle raising funding for Make Love Not Porn is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Ah. It is never what the person I'm talking to thinks. Gotcha. When you understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, as I said, no one can argue with it. The business case is clear. It is always their fear of what they think other people will think, which operates around sex more than any other area. Fear of what other people will think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. Mm. And I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. I felt like I needed to... Amen, sister. I, like, had to, I felt like that was a good like moment to, to celebrate. I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. How did you... Did you grow into that? Is that like a, a skill or a trait or something that it kind of became a learned behavior? Or was that something that you kind of just always had in, in, in you? Oh, no, 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 no. I was a rampantly insecure teenager, 20-something, early 30s. No, I mean, this is just the product of, you know, um, 57 years of living and a gradual realization. You know, to, I, I mean, I say the best moment of my life, but it wasn't a moment. It was it was gradual. It was the day I realized I don't give a damn what anybody thinks because that is the only way to live your life. Yes, yes. I agree with that. It's sometimes easier said than, than done for some, for some of us, I know. Um, speaking of that though, and just that confidence, um, do you feel like you're sort of the most confident that you've ever been? Or was there a time where you were riding high on, high on confidence or success? Or is this kind of like the time right now? Um, no, um, no, I mean, you know, I have all, I, I have all the same insecurities as anybody else. Um, it's just that, you know, um, the, um, the key to, um, living life, not giving down what other people think is um, very simple. You know, um, essentially, uh, and by the way, I live my own philosophies. I believe that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. When you look into yourself and you identify what you stand for, what you believe in, what you value, and when you then only ever behave, act, and communicate in a way that is true to you and your values, that then makes life so much simpler. I mean, life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know exactly how to respond to it in any given situation in a way that is true to you and not to respond in a way that is overly influenced by what other people think. And by the way, that is the secret of happiness. Mm. When you know that you are living life and working work and doing everything in a way that is true to you and your values. That's perfect. That's... It exactly accurate and I, I can get behind that one 
1 billion percent. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I want to uh, ask you about, about culture talk. So uh, Swiss psychologist Carl Jung describes archetypes as the reoccurring patterns found in our stories. Uh, and so with that idea in mind, uh, there's a survey called the Culture Talk Survey System that provides a new framework for understanding that that fuels our personal growth, um, leveraging the inherent power of archetypes. So the goal is to help folks have a more conscious and positive way of interacting and communicating and ultimately helping people realize their greatest potential and organizations can carry out uh, their unique missions. So, you know, Cindy, you are definitely a woman on a mission. <laughs> and prior to our talk, I gave you the culture talk survey, which uh, measured your responses across 12 archetype, uh, archetypal storylines. So with that, uh, do you remember what your primary archetype is? Um, yes, my archetype is, uh, my archetype is hero. That is awesome. That is awesome. I'm just going to read a little bit about uh, what, what heroes are, are all about. So uh, heroes as described in the culture talk survey are, Goal-driven, hardworking, and tenacious, and you believe nothing's worth doing is easy. So setbacks steepen your commitment, uh, and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is a skill you've learned early in life. You are always ready to fight for principles and stand up for your beliefs. There is good and there's bad in the world. As a hero, you are always on the side of good, or at least you do uh, what you believe to be good, and you do things that are always the right things to do. So curious what was your first response to seeing or reading through the report results and and do you agree um yeah i think my first response was um that all sounds about right <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome were there um sort of any connections or aha moments that you had with some of the results or anything that were kind of related to you from a career or even a personal perspective um I mean, to, to be frank, um, yeah. I would like to think I'm, I'm a reasonably self-aware person, not least after 16 years of 360-degree reviews of BBH. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so um, no, I mean, I mean, nothing particularly surprised me or was a revelation about any of that, to be honest. Awesome. Yeah, uh, even the the latent the latent ones. There are some I know. Uh, some folks have gotten like caregiver, and they're like, "Wait a minute, how?" <laughs> you know. Um, no, 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 the latent ones all, all make sense as well. I love that. I think that's amazing. And uh, would you would you say that, um, would you say or or would you have any sort of new ideas as you were reading through, like how that can, some of the things that, you know, are part of your archetypes um, can kind of, you can scale it up um, for different parts of your business even? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm already doing, you know, everything I'm doing. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think it was, um, you know, reflective of that, yeah. um, you know, that, that there wasn't anything more, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, that, that, that I wasn't aware of or, or wasn't doing. You know. So you, you often speak about, um, sort of micro, micro actions and I'm wondering, um, what are the micro actions that have kept you, um, sort of positive as a hero <laughs> uh, that kept you positive while while building your business and educating partners and and finding capital and things like that. Do you have any sort of things that you go to um, or actions you take that sort of get you closer and closer to getting over that that hump? Sure. So so um, 
macro actions are, again, a fundamental part of my life and business philosophy, and they're what my um, other startup, If We Ran the World, is built around. Um, I, I had to back burner If We Ran the World when Make Love Not Porn blew up, because even I, superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. Um, but, um, but I actually designed Make Love Not Porn around... Um, uh, the model, um, the business model of the future that if we around the world is designed to inculcate for brands, shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. So um, the reason microactions are a core part of my philosophy is because I believe that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Mm. Every single one of us, every single day, taking microactions to change what we want to change cumulatively add up at scale to enormous impact. So a, a couple of practical examples of, of how I operate this philosophy, you know, in, in my own sort of working life are, you know, um, what, what I say to people, it, it, because the reason um, I'm all about microactions is because action is transformative. When you take a microaction, however tiny, and you complete it, it instantly begins making you feel completely different about what you're capable of about yourself and, and, and you know, what you can do. So what I always say to people is that if you, if you are really depressed, really down, take a microaction. And it doesn't actually matter what. Just do something. Because just the sheer act of doing something tiny instantly makes you feel better. You know, that, that's what I do when I feel down and depressed. Oh, yeah. Then, then um, you know, building a sex tech startup is enormously challenging. I mean, at the moment... It's a total fight for business survival on Make Love Not Porn. I've been trying to raise um, $2 million in funding to enable us to scale for the last two and a half years, and I've spectacularly failed. Um, I've put a lot of my own money in. I can't afford to do that anymore, and so things are very, very tough at the moment. So um, I am um, uh, – and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you about this, this dimension too because I think your listeners might, might be interested – Several years ago, I realized that um, if you were following me on social media, um, my life superficially looked very glamorous because I support myself through paid public speaking and I get paid to speak all around the world. So I travel a lot. And I realized that, you know, when you see me in, you know, the luxury hotels that organizers book these conferences in, you know, my life could look very different from what it actually is. And so I took a deliberate decision several years ago to be completely transparent about how extremely difficult and unpleasant the life of a startup founder is. Mm. I coined the hashtag startup stress and I just began talking about what a goddamn nightmare it is building a sex tech startup. And the response was fantastic. I mean, people, you know, wrote to me on Facebook, tweeted at me, said, oh my God, it's so great to know that you go through all this too. So anyway, um, life is very stressful, and so the way I manage that is I tell myself every day, okay, today you are only allowed to stress about one thing, maybe two at the most, but of all these 50 million things that are keeping you lying awake at night at 3 a.m. having a dark night of the soul, you know, in the morning you are only allowed to stress about and therefore focus on and solve one thing, and that really helps. Mm. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, it's like one of those things where um, it's like if you're gonna cry, you have to, you have one minute and then it's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's exactly. done. Yeah. <laughs> stress, startup stress. I like that hashtag startup stress. Ooh, I know the feeling. <laughs> I know the feeling, lady. Um, so what do you think? And I think micro, what you just described is great for especially for an a generation of, of entrepreneurs that are coming out. Now, what do you uh, actually love about having your own business? 
Oh, well, well, here's the interesting thing about startup stress. Um, it is remark. It, it makes stress way better when you are entirely in charge of managing your own stress. So I just love freedom of agency. The fact that I can decide what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Um, and by the way, that is why I am evangelical about working for yourself. I recommend it to everyone, especially women. You know, um, you know. I mean, startups are challenging, although you know some are less challenging than others because there are absolutely um, people, um, women who began doing something as a little home business and found a demand for it and it took off. And while that has challenges all of its own, you know, you can um, um, you can find existing markets and play into those. Um, it's more challenging when you're doing something that is, you know, ahead of the curve and quite unique. And it is particularly challenging when, like me, you're doing something very unique and ahead of the curve that has to do with sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but, but in all of this, what I love is that I am my own boss. And that yeah. is a fantastic feeling. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Um, for me, it's been about uh, owning my time and owning my schedule. So to your point about management, it's I remember when I was younger and I uh, just moved to New York and I was walking um, to work and th I just, you know, I saw so many people in Starbucks with their computers and I remember feeling like, I don't know how they get to do this, but I want to do that too. <laughs> I, wanna, I don't know how they, it's 9.30 a.m. and they can be in a Starbucks with their computer, but it sounds like they're doing something right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I it, it stuck with me sort of ever since and now I actually have an office that's like across the street from from that Starbucks I would always walk by every day uh, for for years um so wrapping this this up I got to learn so many wonderful things about you and I have uh just some rapid fire uh words and I just want you to say it's sort of like the first thing that comes to your mind and then um the last question I'm going to ask you is uh, something you can kind of like noodle on for a second, which is, you know, you told me a lot of things that you that you sort of know, um, but I would love to to close out with something that is something that is firm that you know absolutely for sure, cross the board, you know, could write it on a tombstone. Um, so I'm going to start with the rapid fire questions, and I'm just <laughs> I'm curious to know what the hell you're going to say because um, these are very random words, no particular order whatsoever. Ready? Yep. Cool. Genius. Um, universal. I think everybody's a genius at heart in some form or other. Love it. Uh, reinvention. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of reinvention. Failure. Also good. You know, um, if you don't fail, you will never find out what you're truly made of. The true measure of somebody is not how they are when things are going well, but how they are when things are going badly. That's absolutely how you learn about yourself. Hell yeah. Trump. Don't even get me started. <laughs> Sex. Sorry? Sex. Um, fabulous. <laughs> Inclusion. Wonderful. Madonna. <laughs> Sorry? Madonna. Oh, Madonna, love her. Love her to death. Um, uh, love everything about her. Loved especially um, her most recent um, response to her critics, which was, you know, 
Um, nobody is looking at goddamn Mick Jagger going, put it away, Mick, get off the stage. You know, I mean, she, she cited a whole list of ancient male rockers and, and musicians where nobody is, is critiquing them for, you know, what they wear, how they look, who they date. You know, when, when, when you know, Mick Jagger's just got, um, you know, an extremely young woman pregnant and everyone's slagging off Madonna and her toy boys. I love her to death. <laughs> She's amazing. She's amazing. Money. Um, also good. Um, I constantly say to women, it is critically important that you set out to make as much money as you possibly can because we don't get taken seriously as women until we get taken seriously financially. And when, as a woman, you make a shit ton of money, then you can fund other women. You can help other women. You can donate to other women. You can support other women. So money is very important and never be ashamed of wanting to make a huge amount of it. Hell yeah. Love. Um, love is also wonderful. You know. <laughs> it's good. It's cool. It's like oh. M&M's. <laughs> yeah. Advertising. Advertising is, I mean, I mean, actually, funny enough, you know, um, I, I want to put the word love with advertising because I think what not enough people realize is that I do all the work I do championing gender equality and diversity in the advertising industry because I absolutely bloody love advertising and I bloody love the industry. And so I would like to see the industry reinvent itself in a way that is spectacularly failing to do, it, failing to do currently. Mm, love that. Okay, last one, power. Um, very good thing, especially for women. We need a lot more of it. Go for it. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Okay, so wrapping this all up, what is, the, what is something that you absolutely know for sure could put it in the Bible or whatever? <laughs> sure. Um, to, uh, to, I mean, there's a very easy answer to that because it's what I, I say to anybody who asks me for one piece of advice. The only person who can make things happen for you is you love that that's hot if i was um a dj like Funkmaster flex i would drop bombs on it and <laughs> do all sorts of effects and, and that sort of thing run it back because <laughs> that's very real very real uh you know what cindy this was a great conversation and i'm so glad our listeners got to learn a little bit more about you and you know what you're up to and even the um the, the way that you look at life and, and your perspective. This is really cool, and I really do appreciate you taking the time out today. Terrific. Thank you. And, and actually, Tiffany, if I can just say one final thing to yeah. the audience, or two final things. A, um, please become Make Love Not Porn Stars. We'd love to have you. And secondly, um, we recently launched our first ever crowdfunding campaign for Make Love Not Porn. Um, first ever because historically crowdfunding platforms have refused to accept us. But we're on a wonderful platform called iFundWomen, um, which, by the way, your listeners should be aware of. It's at iFundWomen.com. It's the first crowdfunding platform dedicated to female founders. So support other women. Um, do support Make Love Not Porn. And if you have a venture of your own and you're a female founder, iFundWomen is a great place to get it funded. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are full of great resources. And um, if there's anything that you want me to put in the notes, um, I'm going to put my notes in. But um, your website, where to find you, all that good stuff, feel free to say it now. And I'll definitely put it in the notes so, so people can keep up with Make Love, uh, Make Love Not Porn and also um, keep up with you personally. Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Cindy Gallup. Um, and you can follow at Make Love Not Porn. 
Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and, um, and, and if anybody comes across any open-minded and interested investors, please email cindy at makelovenotporn.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Cindy. You're the best. It's a pleasure, Tiffany. Great talking to you. Great talking Take to you, too. Take care. Have a great day. You, too. Bye. Bye.